BC's COVID curve bends upward. And this is a warning to us. We do have a possibility of having explosive growth. A three-day spike in cases and why new modeling data is a concern. A semi loses control on the Trans-Canada. The trail of damage left behind and how it could have been much worse. Honestly, I thought this was it. And tragedy for the Abbotsford police. This is hard. This is... um. We have suffered a loss. What happened in Nelson that left an off-duty officer on life support? You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. Chris is off tonight. We begin with concerning new developments on the COVID-19 front in BC. Let's start with the numbers. And while the total does take into account three days, the numbers are skewing higher than we've been seeing lately. We have 102 new cases. That breaks down like this. 51 Friday to Saturday, 19 Saturday to Sunday, and 32 Sunday through to this morning. BC's total is now 3,300 cases. Thankfully, we've had no new deaths, so that number is holding at 189. 16 people are in hospital, four are in ICU. 2,858 people have recovered, leaving us with 253 active cases. Dr. Bonnie Henry today also unveiled the latest batch of COVID modeling data and the results from the province's COVID-19 survey. As Richard Zussman reports, that data once again highlights the importance of keeping our number of contacts low to prevent another surge of cases. It was supposed to be the province's summer of renewal. Instead, it's turned into the summer of uncertainty. We are at a place where we could see rapidly progression of transmission of this virus if we're not careful. The province releasing new modelling today, showing the worst fears of many could soon become a reality. Dr. Bonnie Henry showing this chart, warning of potential explosive growth of COVID-19 cases. We are at a bit of a tipping point. We now have started to see cases increase. Our curve is bending up. As health officials have warned throughout the pandemic, the more contacts an individual has, the higher the risk of spreading and contracting COVID-19. Right now, British Columbians are at between 65 and 75% of normal contacts. Once we get to 80%, it could mean a big surge in new cases. People are, are a little bit tired of all of this. They want it to go away. I think I want it to go away. But we are, have to live through this and be able to live our lives. And that means we have to be cautious. The concerns are focused on young people. The outbreak in Kelowna around Canada Day now has more than 60 cases linked to it. We will see more cases in the next couple of weeks. But the challenge and what we can do is stop those people from exposing anybody else. And it's not just young people gathering. It's where they're gathering. From houseboats to bars and restaurants to hotels, a shift leading to some tighter measures coming soon. Can we put in measures that put the onus on the rental agency to ensure that these types of parties aren't happening or that numbers are smaller? And on a scale to 100, how worried do these trends make Dr. Henry? <laughs> well, how about a, I'm at 102. <laughs> That's my level of concern for today. A nervous chuckle following numbers that haven't left Dr. Henry and many British Columbians laughing. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria.
All right, let's bring in Keith Baldry now for more on today's COVID-19 developments. 102 cases. Keith, Dr. Bonnie Henry is clearly expressing concern today. Take Mm -hmm. us through a little more of the modeling and how that might impact things going forward. Yeah, so this is we're going to take a look at uh, some of the responses to that public uh, uh, survey on COVID-19. More than 300,000 people uh, filled it out. And that's going to guide us uh, in terms of where we're headed in terms of behavior and such. So take a look at this. Four in five Canadians uh, buy into uh, to what's going on in terms of public health measures, uh, ranging from all sorts of things. But also young people between the ages of 18 and 29 have the least buy-in here because they're the most impacted. So you take a look at that column on the very right. That's a concern even though 80, 79% have the ability to stay home if they're sick, clearly not enough people are staying home. So public health officials hope to address that in the days ahead. Now, in terms of the impact and challenges on people, uh, it's had a substantive impact. Take a look at that left column. 47% say their, their mental health has been adversely affected. Uh, all sorts of things in terms of impacts. One of the more troubling ones, 62% are worried about vulnerability uh, for certain family members. On the right-hand side there, 69% say their work has been impaired, their employment has been impaired likely means reduced hours. Dr. Bonnie Henry, again, making the point today, as Richard Zussman pointed out in his story, they're going to be looking at the, the transmission of this virus, where it's located in the days ahead, and to curb behaviors to ensure it doesn't continue to spread. But forcing people into a forced lockdown can just simply drive some of this behavior underground. Here's Dr. Henry. What we want to do is look at where these uh, transmission events are happening more commonly and look at the measures that are important to try and reduce the spread in those settings. I believe it is better for us to work and to find those ways of doing things safely uh, rather than shutting things down blanket because then we know that people will be going underground and hiding things. So back to that 102 cases, Sophie. What's different about those two is the makeup of them. Up until now, the Fraser Health Authority is by and large where we see new cases. Not so much this time. A lot of them are in the interior, uh, connected to that Kelowna outbreak. And interestingly enough, uh, for the first time, a huge number or a significant number of, of people between the age of 20 and 29 are testing positive. Of the 102, 38 of them are between the age of 20 and 29. That's a different statistic than we've seen at any time during the pandemic. Lots to think about, Keith. Thank you. Earl's in Port Coquitlam has closed down temporarily after three staff members came down with COVID-19. The popular restaurant on Shaughnessy Street says all three employees are now self-isolating at home. Earl says all staff members were temperature checked upon arrival at work, did not show symptoms, and they were wearing appropriate PPE. Although Earl's says Fraser Health told them it is safe to remain open and that the risk to the public is low, the restaurant says it decided to close its doors briefly for a complete deep cleaning and sanitation. Well, despite the growing global death toll and the warnings from public health officials like Dr. Bonnie Henry, there is still a vocal fringe that views the coronavirus crisis as the product of a global conspiracy. On Sunday, a group of those self-described COVID truthers held a march in downtown Vancouver. Paul Johnson has more on the movement. I think a lot of the mainstream media lies. Lies. Do you actually believe what happened to Mr. Floyd? Uh, Do you believe that narrative that he actually passed away? This was part of the encounter between Global News and a group demonstrating against mask rules in Vancouver Sunday. One of the things motivating many of them is a belief that the official story about the COVID-19 pandemic is a hoax. Your facts are not facts. You guys are actors. At a time when it's critical for people to have faith in our institutions and to cooperate with them, 
What is driving such intense distrust of the news media and government? This is wild. Like all these thoughts that all these people have. Nick Light is a documentary film director who's worked with Vice and the BBC. For months now, he's been following this group and trying to understand their views. I think it all comes down to fear. I think they're afraid of what's happening in the world. Light believes, for many of them, their willingness to embrace conspiracies goes back to the confusing days after 9-11. Now fueled by a more diverse and powerful internet, their tendency to reject anything outside their in-group thinking resembles behavior often seen in cults. They won't listen to any counter-arguments. They will cut family members and people out of their lives who they feel are damaging to their, their belief. Light is shooting for a feature doc film about the movement. Given how they can respond to questions about their beliefs, he's likely to have plenty of intriguing footage. Oh in Vancouver, Paul Johnson, Global News. Incredible dash cam video has emerged, capturing the moment a semi sparked a major crash west of Sycamus. Ed Painter was driving behind the flatbed truck when a westbound semi slammed into it on the Trans-Canada Highway last Wednesday. Police say the big rig driver failed to negotiate a turn and crossed a double solid line. The tractor trailer, which was hauling groceries, flipped onto its side and skidded for another 50 meters before striking an eastbound semi, two more trucks and an SUV. I heard the bang, the windshield, glass everywhere. and I kind of leaned over, tried to get as much under the dash as I could, which pretty hard to do but personally I thought that was it I thought you know what I don't think I can make it incredibly no one was seriously hurt despite extensive damage to the six vehicles involved although the flatbed driver lost part of an ear police believe speed may have been a factor the 32 year old Calgary man behind the wheel of the semi was charged under the motor vehicle act with crossing a double solid line Coquitlam RCMP are hoping to identify and speak with a woman in connection with a road rage incident. It happened at about 8.15 on the evening of July 4th in the intersection of Lougheed Highway and Shaughnessy Street in Port Coquitlam. Police say two female pedestrians gave the finger to people in a car and then one of the pedestrians punched the female passenger through the open window. The passenger managed to snap a photo of the woman as she ran away. And while her back was to the camera, she was wearing a distinctive pair of yellow, red and black Nike Jordan AJ1 mids. If you know the suspect, you are asked to call Coquitlam RCMP. A heartbreaking development tonight in the case of an Abbotsford police officer critically injured during an off-duty attack in Nelson. The department confirming that Constable Alan Young is not expected to survive. John Hua has more on what happened and how Young's devastated colleagues are remembering him. You always had a smile on your face when he left the room. It's the countless memories of Constable Alan Young that's left a hole in the heart of this Abbotsford police family. This is hard. This is, um, we have suffered a loss. I can't even imagine uh, the loss of his family right now. The 55-year-old was off duty in Nelson, B.C. on July 16th. When Nelson police believe he approached someone who was causing a disturbance on Baker Street. A fight broke out and Young suffered life-threatening injuries. He hit a cop with a off-duty cop with a skateboard. 
I don't, I don't know exactly what happened between them, but definitely, I definitely didn't call for that, man. The husband and father is on life support, but unexpected to survive. In a case like this where an officer is off-duty, uh, tells you just how dedicated an officer uh, this individual was. And it's, uh, it is a heartbreaking, just heartbreaking uh, tragedy. Nelson police are leading the investigation with the help of the BCRCMP's major crime unit. A 26-year-old man has been arrested in connection with the incident. When we receive the news that he was involved in an incident, it doesn't matter what it is. The fact that we've lost a brother in our police family is heart-wrenching. Young, known for his thick Scottish accent and quick sense of humor, is also being praised for his willingness to help others within the department and community. He was there for everybody. Didn't matter if it was a police officer, a new officer, a veteran officer. He was there for a smile. He was always there to lend a hand. As Young's family members, including the ones in uniform, wait for answers, the heartbreaking sense of loss is already here. John Hua, Global News. And this is just the latest tragedy to rock Abbotsford Police. In November of 2017, the department lost Constable John Davidson after the veteran officer was shot and killed in the line of duty. Well, tempers are flaring in Haida Gwaii. An angry confrontation on the water between the First Nation and a local fishing lodge. How COVID-19 fears are driving up tension over tourists in just over a minute. We stood up and said yes, so we could get back to normal. They volunteered to take part in COVID-19 vaccine trials. The early results and how they reacted coming up. Plus, what to do when a bison is charging at you. That's coming up on the news hour as well. Right now, though, tensions appear to be rising between the Haida Nation and a fishing lodge on B.C.'s central coast. Haida Gwaii recently reported its first case of COVID-19, and the First Nation fears the virus will spread to their remote community. But as Tetraneki reports, Queen Charlotte Lodge says the dispute is more about politics. This is edited video posted on Facebook and forwarded to media outlets from Haida Nation members. It shows several fishing boats returning to Queen Charlotte Lodge at Naden Harbour about three days ago. Oh, it's been 10 days since the province gave the okay to allow two fishing lodges to resume operations under strict COVID-19 guidelines. Oh, the owner of the lodge says they rarely see natives at this part of the harbour and question if they're not there just to make a political statement. I believe this is all about uh, creating the self-governance and the sovereign state. Uh, this has virtually nothing to do anymore with uh, the COVID. A good example is that they were they've set up uh, a camp, a temporary camp, suggesting that they're they're doing some traditional food fishing very close to the mouth of the of the harbor. That's that's simply a protest only. They're not food, food fishing. That's look, 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 for sure. There's no fish there. All our people still fish there for years. And they're still fishing there. A lot of uh, a lot of our elderly like to fish that area. Queen Charlotte Lodge says that its significant expanse it now charters a 737 jet to carry guests not to either airport on Haida Gwaii, but directly to Prince Rupert. 
From there, it has helijet transport all guests, no Americans or internationals, they claim, directly to their lodge. There, they have two doctors available 24-7. Should COVID appear, they'll medevac the patient out immediately on a chartered helicopter. Tension has been on the rise for three months now, going back to April when First Nations tried to turn around a BC ferries over concerns it was bringing non-residents to the islands. And last Friday, the province held high-level meetings for half a day to address concerns among First Nations, including Haida Gwaii. My hope is that uh, we, we, can, we can find the, that balance point where economic activity can start to happen and, and that we can still maintain the safety of the communities and the elders. The Lodge says it has installed dash cams in all of its boats and staff are instructed to not interact, to simply let the video be the witness to events as they happen. The RCMP has asked Haida Nation for the unedited video as it tries to ease tension. Ted Chernacki, Global News. Just ahead, a flight refund offered and then rescinded. But the mistakes weren't mine. It was WestJet's mistake. The airline's response when Consumer Matters came calling. Plus, Stanley Park divided how the controversial traffic plan could become a human rights issue. Well, traffic is completely blocked out here in Maple Ridge on Lowheed Highway at Spillsbury Street due to pedestrian struck. Traffic can get by on Dudney Trunk as an alternate route. The all-electric 2020 Chevrolet Bolt EVLT offers an estimated 417-kilometer range and up to $10,729 in total credits during employee pricing. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One, high above a major crash in Maple Ridge. The battle over vehicles in Stanley Park shows no signs of slowing, with disability advocates now saying the new rules are actually violating human rights. And as Sarah McDonald reports, they say legal action is a possibility if the park board doesn't make changes. What to do with traffic in the jewel of Vancouver has become a thorn in the side of the city's park board. And the closure of one lane of vehicle traffic to make way for cyclists could soon become a human rights issue too. For people with disabilities, a lot of times cars are not a luxury. There are the banks. It all boils down to reduced parking stalls and the proximity of those left in Stanley Park, which are crucial for accessibility to people like Peter Brown, who says the elimination of nearly a third of all parking spots mean many would-be visitors simply can't. 700 regular spots out of 2,100 is the number that we've given us. So you got 30% of regular parking and about a quarter of disabled parking. Newly allocated parking spots for visitors with disabilities, like the one behind me, have since been put in place. But besides their location, just steps away from bicycle and vehicle traffic, there's another big reason that critics say these spots aren't sufficient. And here's why. They don't have the curb cuts that we typically see in parking spots designated for visitors with mobility issues. And closing down the parking lots on the west side of the park made it so they just couldn't come in. Trisha Barker wants both lanes reopened to vehicle traffic, but her fellow park board commissioners in favor of the status quo point to parking spots sitting vacant and positive feedback on the closure from constituents. There's three areas that were open to people with disabilities that are no longer. That by itself is contrary to human rights legislation. 
but Brown and other advocates for the disabled who say they weren't adequately consulted say parts of the park are now effectively closed to those who aren't able-bodied, with some now considering legal action as a last resort in a bid to put the park back to the way it was. Sarah McDonald, Global News. A WestJet customer is being denied a refund she says she was promised. The traveler says the option was given when the airline changed her flight. But when she accepted the refund online, nothing showed up on her credit card statement. Let's bring in Consumer Matters reporter Ann Drua. And what happened? Well, Sophie Lois Carefoot has spent hours on the phone trying to get answers from WestJet as to what happened to her refund. When she finally got through to the airline, the response she got was disappointing, to say the least. Look at all the stuff we had to go through. For months, Lois Carefoot has been sifting through paperwork, trying to get a firm answer from WestJet as to why she's been denied a full refund that she says the airline agreed to. They offered me something, they promised it to me, and now it's disappeared. It's not, it's not available anymore. On January 22nd, Lois booked a round-trip flight from Vancouver to Edmonton. But on March 9th, Lois received a notification from WestJet alerting her about an itinerary change to her upcoming flight on April 17th. I was debating whether to take the offer of accepting the flight change or a full refund that was offered to me at that time. She eventually decided on March 17th to cancel the flight online and accept the refund option. Was WestJet clear about offering you a refund at the time they changed that itinerary? Yes, it was an option option where you check the box that you wanted a refund back to your original form of payment, and which was my MasterCard. She also received this confirmation email from WestJet on March 17th. The selected flight will be cancelled and your refund request has been submitted for processing. For refunds to original form of payment, please allow up to 14 days for your request to be processed. But weeks later, no refund. In April, Lois reached out to WestJet and says she was told to be patient and to wait another 30 to 40 days. Then at the end of June, Lois eventually received another response from WestJet in an email stating, I understand that on March 17th you cancelled your reservation online and were advised you would receive a refund in 14 business days, which never happened. Unfortunately, this was an error on the website at that time. With all the changes that were going on due to COVID-19, the website was was late in getting updated. But the mistakes weren't mine. It was WestJet's mistake. Lois was out over $270. When Consumer Matters reached out to WestJet asking why Lois was being denied a refund because of a computer error, WestJet told us, as the CTA noted in the April 22nd clarification, airline tariffs do not always provide for cash refunds, especially cases beyond our control. WestJet believes refunding with travel credits is an appropriate and responsible approach in extraordinary circumstances such as the COVID-19 crisis. But air passenger rights advocates wonder why the federal government isn't doing more for Canadian consumers. How come WestJet is getting away with this? The primary question is why the government is not enforcing passenger rights. Lois is wondering that too. Nobody's listening, nobody's helping me, and if we're kind of all in this together, we got to help each other. 
Now, the Canadian Transportation Agency would not comment on Lois Carefoot's case, only to say if a passenger feels an airline has not fulfilled the obligations in the Air Passenger Protection Regulations, they can file a complaint with the CTA. Meantime, air passenger advocates recommend in a case like this to contact your credit card company and commence a chargeback on the basis of services not received, or you can try small claims court. And if you have a consumer issue for me, you can email me at consumermatters at globalnews.ca. All right, thanks for that, Anne. Up next, new details about that deadly tour bus rollover on the Columbia ice field. We saw them speeding away and uh, careening off the side. What we're learning about the crash and the victims. Plus, BC's vaping action plan. Strict new rules aimed at young people. Traffic is steady here at the Portman Bridge in both directions. Minimal delays east and west. And good news, recently cleared a stalled vehicle. It was westbound past the west end of the Portman Bridge in the left lane. The all-electric 2020 Chevrolet Bolt VLT offers an estimated 417-kilometer range and up to $10,729 in total credits during employee pricing. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One, high above the Portman Bridge. We have some breaking news for you. Quebec provincial police have discovered a body and they believe it to be that of Martin Carpentier. Carpentier has been the subject of a huge manhunt since his two daughters went missing on July 8th, triggering an Amber Alert. The bodies of six-year-old Romy and 11-year-old Nora were discovered last Saturday. A funeral was held for the girls today. Police say they believe Carpentier took his own life. We are learning more tonight about a tragedy at a popular tourist destination in Alberta. Three people were killed when an ice explorer tour bus en route to the Athabasca Glacier rolled down a steep embankment. Global's Heather Urex-West explains what we know about the victims and the close call for a Calgary family. Vanya Kurtulitsa was with his family on another ice explorer bus Saturday when he watched the horrific scene. We were waiting for them about 150, 200 meters away to come down that hill and then we saw them speeding away and uh, careening off the side and then rolling over four or five times off the side of the hill there. The Calgary man and his family had been scheduled to take the two o'clock tour of the Athabasca Glacier but had managed to get on an earlier bus on standby. The vehicle remained overturned on site at the foot of the glacier Monday as crews from the Transportation Safety Board, Alberta Occupational Health and Safety and the RCMP continued their investigation. The company that operates the bus says it's been operating tours on the glacier without any other major incident for nearly 40 years. We average about 480,000 visitors a year uh, in an average year and we've been operating these vehicles uh, since the early 80s. So we've had over 16, point, well, 16 million passengers safely taken out onto the ice over all these years. The Athabasca Glacier spills out from the vast Columbia ice field. The front of the glacier, called the Toe, is retreating because of climate change. What's left behind looks like a moonscape, a moraine made up of rugged debris that can vary from large boulders to very fine sediment and clay that can be treacherous for travel. Family members have identified 24-year-old Dion DeRoche of Canoe Narrow, Saskatchewan, as one of three people killed in Saturday's crash. RCMP say the other two victims include a 28-year-old woman from Edmonton and a 58-year-old man from India. Their names have not been released. But Calgary's Himanshu Lalalji told Global News Sunday he knew 10 people, including an infant, who were on the bus. Husband and wife, they are my friends, yeah. their parents, and the four-month-old daughter. They were all on there? All on there, yeah. And there is another family 
from Edmonton, husband and wife. And there is one more family in Edmonton, husband and wife. Lalalji says he was told the baby is doing okay. He's been able to visit some of his friends in hospital. A tour operator says the driver of the bus was also injured in the crash. Four people remain in critical condition. Heather Urich's West, Global News, Calgary. In health matters tonight, the B.C. government has announced a number of changes aimed at curbing the explosion of vaping among young people. In most cases, the new rules and regulations take effect immediately. But as Catherine Urquhart reports, some critics say the government didn't go far enough. Vaping has become increasingly popular with young people. A Health Canada study in 2018 showed 23% of kids in grades 7 through 12 have tried e-cigarettes. Now, the B.C. government says it's taking action to deal with the problem. Those who uh, begin to uh, vape as young people are up to seven times more likely to start smoking cigarettes. B.C.'s new vaping rules limit the amount of nicotine in a vaping pod to 20 milligrams per milliliter, which is similar to a pack of 20 cigarettes. That amount lower than most North American standards and matches those in the European Union. Flavored vaping products will be limited for sale in adult-only stores. Stores that sell to youth can only stock tobacco-flavored products. And vaping products must have plain packaging with health warnings and nicotine levels identified. Also, ads for vaping products won't be allowed in places where young people gather. Vaping is, of course, for some people, harm reduction. If you are a young person... If you are under 19, it is not harm reduction, it is just harm. The Canadian Vaping Association is praising the announcement, saying the B.C. government has found a means to protect our youth while supporting the key role vaping plays in reducing smoking rates throughout Canada. But the group Action on Smoking and Health says the government should have removed from the market all flavoured products. This is a comprehensive plan. Uh, that when joined by federal action will have, I think, uh, a positive effect in reducing uh, vaping use amongst young people. The changes take effect immediately, but businesses with existing product are allowed to sell it until September 15th. Catherine Urquhart, News. Just ahead, new technology to sniff out species that aren't supposed to be here. In this tube... Um, where we're going to do DNA extraction. How UBC researchers are bringing the lab with them in the fight against invasive pests. And later, a huge loss for the Canucks. Remembering Jack McElhargy still to come. Give a shout out. Tag posts with hashtag BC Healthcare Heroes or email BC Healthcare Heroes at globalnews.ca to share with Global News. BC Healthcare Heroes in partnership with Fortis BC, caring for the BC communities where we live and work. You're watching Global News Hour at 6. UBC scientists say they've developed a new high-tech scanner that could be a game-changer in the battle against invasive species. As Linda Aylesworth reports, their new device can tell within hours instead of days or months if something nasty has hitched a ride from another part of the world. Our forests are under attack, and Dr. Richard Hamlin, an invasive species expert at the University of British Columbia, is leading the charge to protect them. Invasive species, they've been on the rise since the beginning of globalization. 
they're knocking at our doors. So now is a great time to stop them in their track and prevent them from spreading. Of course, it helps to know what the enemy is. Traditionally, field workers collect samples, then send them off for identification, sometimes to labs as far away as Ottawa, which can take a week just to get there. Then you need the expert to do the work in the lab in Ottawa, and that can take, well, anywhere from weeks to months. The delay inspired a desire to speed up the process, to find a way to identify invasive species right there in the field. I have had this idea for about 25 years uh, because we had just started 25 years ago to develop DNA methods to identify these uh, insects and pathogens. And so, two and a half decades later, he's in the final stages of testing his rapid DNA detection method, which can identify any invasive species, from insects... Here I take just a part of the body of the moth. It could be an antenna, for example, and I just put it in this tube. To things that are invisible to the naked eye, like fungus hiding under bark. Just pop the samples into the machine. And I start to run, and we have 118 minutes remaining till we get the results. The chemicals it uses have been specially designed to be stable in extreme temperatures, so no refrigeration is required. Important in the field, as is the fact that it's compact. In our case, smaller is better. Small is beautiful. Linda Aylesworth, Global News. Women's caught on camera. Hey! A bison charges at visitors in Yellowstone National Park in Montana. We'll show you what happened right after Christie's forecast. Yikes. And what you should do if a bison is charging at you. We'll tell okay. you that as well. All right, beautiful weather. This definitely feels like summer now, Christy. Oh, yeah, we're in full swing, that's for sure, Sophie. A little bit of high-level cloud, but otherwise blue sky today. Near the water, a little cooler. We had a bit of a breeze, but overall it was a scorcher today. Here's a look at the values today. Uh, so in Metro Vancouver, Humidex value up to 29. Look at Hope, 38. Nanaimo, 33. Abbotsford, 36. And I wanted to tell you a little bit about sweat and why it's so important and why we give you now the human X value. So um, why is human X value so important? Well, first of all, our bodies need to be at about 37 degrees Celsius. That's our typical temperature. But it starts to heat up, of course, when the sun is out and things are really warm. And when our body starts to sweat, the sweat is on our skin. That's a very important process because the water from the sweat actually evaporates. And it's that evaporation that cools us. It draws the heat out of the body through a process known as evaporative cooling. But when we have a ton of humidity in the air, that process is uh, slowed somewhat. So on humid days, sweat actually fails to evaporate from your skin, keeping you warmer and leaving you feel, feeling sticky. So that's why we report on that Humidex value now, because it is so important. It gives you that idea of how hot your body will feel. Tomorrow we'll see some rain in through the northern regions, but hot and sunny across southern BC. But we will see things cool off a little bit across the south coast over the coming days. So not quite as hot as what we saw today, a little bit more comfortable. Some cloud cover and a slight chance of showers though in the morning on Wednesday. So showers tomorrow for northern BC, hot and sunny across the interior tomorrow, but the south coast a tad cooler, more comfortable for us tomorrow with highs reaching 22 degrees near the water, 26 degrees away from the water. We'll still have a little bit of humidity tomorrow, but overall a little bit more comfortable with a bit more cloud cover. And I'll leave you with this really stunning shot from 
Craig Bay, which is in Nunoose Bay. Michelle Lim sending us that one. Nice sunset shot there. That is gorgeous. Thank you, Christy. Now back to that frightening wildlife encounter in Yellowstone National Park. Go! Hey! All right, let's take a look at that again. A couple of bison walking in a large field when the animals suddenly charge. Two women start running, but one of them trips and falls. And you heard people screaming, play dead. That is exactly what she does. You see her lying motionless as the bison checks her out and eventually the animal gallops away. The bystander who recorded the incident says the woman is a local and knew that she should play dead in that situation. Thankfully, she was not hurt. Who knew? Now you know what happens, Squire, if a bison comes at you. Well, I'm never going to get that close to a bison. Anyway. You never know. See, my feeling is I don't see them walk down my street, <laughs> so I don't go to their street. That's the good deal. Good point, good point. All right. Uh, sad day in um, Canucks Nation. Jack McElhargy, one of the really good guys who was with that team for so many years, passed away last night. Class, tough, great teammate. He was everything to the Canucks organization and an assistant coach, a minor league coach, a player, helped start their alumni association. We'll talk about him. Also tonight, promising results in the race for a COVID vaccine. How participants reacted to the experimental immunization. All right, over to Squire now and sad news off the top, Squire. Yes, it is. This is a very nice man. Jack McElhargy, a longtime member of the Vancouver Canucks, passed away last night at the age of 68. He was a Canucks defenseman for part of four seasons. He was an assistant coach for 12. He also coached in the Canucks minor league system. As I said, one of the nicest guys you will ever meet. Someone whose off-ice personality was so much different than his game face. When he played for the Canucks or for Philadelphia or Hartford, other players knew if you messed around with one of Jack's teammates, you had to deal with Jack. Jack was the type of guy that always had your back. Now, having said that, if you started it with a cheap shot, Jack would say, you finish it. But if somebody cheap shot at you, Jack would then be the first guy in to help. In an era where tough guys were a necessity to an NHL team, Jack McElhargy was one of the best there was. But he was a tough guy who lived by an honorable code. You only take on guys your own size. He wasn't that type of guy. He was there. He was tough. He was fair. It wasn't a lot of fun playing against him, but it was a lot of fun playing with him. There are way more Canucks who played for Jack than played with him. He was an assistant for five different Canuck coaches. Harry Neal, Tom Watt, Bob McCammon, Pat Quinn, and finally Mark Crawford. Jack was a relationship builder, and the, the guys that he coached loved him and played hard for him. Jack was also a key part in getting the Canucks Alumni Association going. Jack helped move our alumni forward, and, and the, the respect that the current organization and the alumni have today is a lot of, a lot of it as a result of Jack's effort to on our behalf when he was working for the Canucks. He was part of so many different Canuck eras, and it's safe to say he was as nice a man off the ice as he was tough on the ice. And quite honestly, anyone who knew Jack 
can say they were very lucky to have known him. Some of us won't be missed, but Jack will be missed. Not sure yet if the Canucks are going to have some sort of symbol on their uniform or helmets for Jack McElhargy, but they should. The Canucks had a day off today after holding another scrimmage last night. One where Jake and Mark should look to be in MVP form. And another strong game from forward Zach McEwen, who's definitely playing his way into the starting lineup when things get real again when they face Minnesota in early August. Let's take a look at last night's uh, inter-squad game. And this is the work of Markstrom, stopping his Swedish countryman, Louis Eriksson. Another save by Markstrom. Looked a little rough in a scrimmage earlier last week, but this was vintage. And then McEwen. He actually scored three goals in three games just before the pandemic pause. One timer off the pass there from Elias Pettersson. The Toronto Blue Jays need a temporary home, and it can't be anywhere in Canada. On the weekend, the government said no to any American teams crossing the border to play games in Toronto. The players have said they would prefer to play their home games at a major league stadium. So Toronto right now is trying to work out a deal where it shares a stadium with another major league team. Well, despite that 3-0 loss to Seattle last night, there is still an outside chance the Whitecaps can stay in this MLS tournament, but they'll need help from other teams. They'll also have to beat Chicago in their final game in the round robin on Thursday. They've allowed seven goals in two games, and getting scored on in bunches has actually been a problem for this team dating back to last season. There you go. All right, Squire, thanks very much. Let's check in with Anne Drua now for a look ahead to Global News at 11. Anne? Thanks, Sophie. There has been another Metro Vancouver restaurant chain that's reported a COVID-19 case. Brown Social House in Port Moody's Newport Village reopened this afternoon after being closed yesterday for cleaning and contact tracing. In light of the latest numbers from Dr. Bonnie Henry today, we will look at whether the increase in cases in B.C. will be enough to prompt people to change some of their habits. That story and more when you join us tonight at 11 o'clock. Sophie. All right, sounds good. Thank you, Anne. Tonight's healthcare hero is just ahead. Plus, it's what the world is waiting for. A COVID-19 vaccine and early trials are showing encouraging results. That's next. Recognize another one of our BC healthcare heroes on the front lines of the COVID-19 pandemic. Tonight's nomination comes from Kelly and Linda Morrison, and they are so proud of Dr. Todd Alec from Fort St. James. Todd works at the University Hospital of Northern British Columbia in Prince George. He's part of the general internal medicine team who assess and stabilize sick patients and require, who require specialized care however, are not sick enough to be admitted to the ICU. As part of this team, he's worked with COVID patients, although not too many at this point, as there have been few cases in northern BC so far. That is a good thing, of course. Todd and his wife, Teresa, who is Kelly and Linda's granddaughter and is also working toward becoming a doctor, have three boys, Aiden, their eldest, Theodore, and their most recent addition, Miles. Dr. Todd, Alec, Kelly and Linda are so proud of you and say you are their healthcare hero. And we want to thank you for continuing to show up for BC. If you have a BC healthcare hero you would like to see recognized, send an email to bchealthcareheroes at globalnews.ca. Send a few pictures and some details about why they're your hero and we could feature them next. 
Well, encouraging news in the race to develop a COVID-19 vaccine now. Early research suggests the vaccine being developed in the UK is safe and effective and could potentially be available by the end of 2020. The initial results look promising. A possible COVID-19 vaccine from the University of Oxford appears safe to continue testing, scientists say, and produces two types of protection from the coronavirus. The trial included more than a thousand healthy volunteers aged 18 to 55, with half receiving the experimental vaccine shown to rapidly and robustly increase both coronavirus-fighting antibodies and virus-hunting T-cells, according to results released today in the British journal The Lancet. We have, first of all, um, a vaccine which is very well tolerated, and then secondly, um, that we are seeing uh, good immune responses, exactly the sort of immune responses we were hoping for. I caught up today with the Viney family, all three taking part in the Oxford trial. So when you read that, it's safe, appears to be effective on two levels, you have it in your bodies, what did you think? It's good that it's effective and safe. I think that the uh, fact it's producing T-cells as well or shown to be is, is a bonus, isn't it? It's like the cherry on the cake, really. How are you feeling? Several months have gone by. No difference at all. Not, even, not noticed anything at all, have we? No, no side effects at all. But there are some potential side effects, including headache and fatigue. So when could it be available? NBC's Keir Simmons spoke with the director of the Oxford Institute leading the research. If everything goes well, a vaccine by early 2021? A vaccine later this year is not impossible. A lot of things would have to go right for that to happen and to be deployed in 2020. But we're still targeting that. Scientists believe they can have an early batch for medical professionals or high-risk populations ready this year with wider distribution next year. But they really won't know how well it works until the volunteers who've taken the vaccine are actually exposed to the coronavirus. Hmm. Mm. All right, well, cross your fingers, yeah. all of them. Uh, Christy, final word on the weather and will it be sweaty? <laughs> Not quite as sweaty as it was today. Yeah, so a touch cooler tomorrow, that's for sure. 22 to 26 degrees with the humid X, though, away from the water, about 30. So that's pretty hot, but not the 36, 38 that we saw today. So a bit more comfortable. I don't know if you were paying attention, Squire. We learned about sweat today. Really? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh. Okay, tell me, give me a, some uh, crib notes. It's good for you. That's oh, all that we have. Have a good night, all.